Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for February 8th, 2018. On today's show, we're going to be diving into a bunch of news, including the big Joker casting report, Brian Fuller leaves amazing stories, the big sick writers go to Apple, Annihilation Early Buzz, a reaction to the Venom trailer, Dwayne Johnson's Fast and Furious spinoff gets a director, and at the water cooler, we'll be talking about diets, books, and yoga. This is Peter Sreda, and joining me on today's podcast is Slash Film senior writer Ben Pearson. Hey, what's going on? And Slash Film writer Huay Tran Bui. Hey, everyone. So it's been a while since we've done a water cooler, so, so I thought, um, why not do it now? Uh, it's been, I don't know about you guys, but I've been very busy with the server migra- migration. Um, my arm is still healing. I'm going to be in a cast for the next probably three weeks. Um, but I'm also back on my diet, which I think I've talked about a long time ago on, on a past episode of, of, uh, this podcast. I'm on, uh, the keto diet, which basically means I can only eat up to like 20 carbs a day and I'm eating high fat, high protein, low carb, uh, which is, 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 is tough, but I can do it. Uh, uh, like today I'm having a salad from Chipotle, which is wonderful. Anyways, um, it's a struggle. Uh, as, as is any diet. Uh, but I, I, it's interesting. I found, uh, recently, like I'm, I'm browsing like the web looking for, this is probably not what you should do on a diet, but I'm browsing the web for like, you know, is there a, like a pe- a frozen pizza that they make that is keto friendly or is there like some kind of cake thing? So n- now I've been like ordering all this like stuff that like, Sounds like stuff I shouldn't eat, but, like, for whatever reason is made with, like, you know, eggs and almond flour. And, you know, I have, <laughs> like, I, I spent, like, way too much for, like, this crate of, like, frozen pizzas, which are, like, five inches. Right. <laughs> and the crust is made out of, like, cheese. Um, so I'm eating all these, like, weird, weird things. But uh, but I'm happy. And I've I've lost, uh, I think, 19 pounds thus far wow. in, a, in a couple weeks. Um, I mean, some of that's probably water weight, so I'm not kidding myself. But uh, I have a long way to go. Uh, but, uh, H.T., you, you've been uh, doing something kind of related. You've been doing yoga. 
Yeah, it's actually something called hot yoga or Bikram yoga and uh, sort of been doing it in the spirit of New Year's resolutions and trying to get stay in shape while the winter kind of keeps me inside, keeps everyone indoors. So hot yoga is a class that I've been going to where you do yoga in a room that's around 92 degrees Fahrenheit to up to 105 degrees Fahrenheit. So as soon as you get into that room, you're just hit, just hit by a wall of heat. Um, I'm sure you guys are very familiar with that kind of heat in California. Actually, I'm not sure if it gets that quite that humid, but um, it's you start sweating immediately just as just by sitting in the room. And so you have to actually do yoga with a beach towel on top of your mat because you start dripping sweat so much. And uh, you have to make sure to keep hydrated. Otherwise, you may pass out during the <laughs> hot yoga exercises out of dehydration. And um, at one point, I was I've, been, I've done it a couple times. I remember seeing this one woman who was going really hardcore. Like, you can go at your own pace, but some people go, like, extremely aggressively at it. She had, like, an entire gallon of water right next to her, and she had finished it by the end of the class. And just, like, everything around her was just a pile of sweat. Wow. So it's really fascinating. You kind of have to dress like you're going to the pool because you just soak <laughs> through all your clothes and everything. So, yeah, it's it's been really good. It's really tiring. Um more so it's just like exhaustion than like your muscles or anything like that. But it's it's really good, I think. I can't even imagine doing yoga in that kind of heat because uh, a couple years ago I did some yoga, you know, watching some videos online and doing yoga in front of my computer. Uh, and I was doing that straight for like, you know, a couple months. And every time I did it, I was sweating my ass off in a cool, comfortable environment. <laughs> So I can't imagine doing it at 92 degrees. Um, I probably I probably would have passed out. But um, Ben, uh, <laughs> the two of us uh, have been doing all this activity. What have you been up to? I know. I feel like I should talk about doing something active, but I've just been sort of laying around reading books and stuff. Um, one of the ones that I wanted to mention today was uh, I recently read A Knight of the Seven Kingdoms, which is sort of a spin-off book uh, by George R. R. Martin that is set in the world of Game of Thrones. It takes place, um, I think, about 100 years before the events depicted in A Song of Ice and Fire and the HBO series. So for me, I don't know, have either of you read this? Peter, I'm guessing you probably have not, but HT, have you read this <laughs> I book? Haven't, I haven't, but I, is that the Duncan Egg series? Yes. I, I've read a couple of the short stories around it. Okay, cool. Yeah, so this it's like a collection of, I think it's three short stories or novellas or whatever they call them um, that are set in that same world and it follows uh, a hedge knight named Sir Duncan the Tall and his uh, young child squire named Egg whose identity is actually uh, something of a secret and I won't really ruin that, but if you know his name is Egg, you can probably guess where that's going if you know anything about the world of Game of Thrones. Um, for me, I'll just keep this very brief. I did not like this nearly as much as the original uh, Song of Ice and Fire books. And I think it's because for me, I watched um, multiple seasons of HBO's Game of Thrones before I dove into reading those books. So I sort of had a sense of what the characters looked like and, and who everyone was. And it made it way easier to read the books because I already had that knowledge of, you know, like that foundation of that the show had built for me in my mind. And this there's there hasn't been any adaptations of this yet 
Um, so it was a little harder to picture some of the stuff that was going on. I mean, George R. R. Martin's prose is always very uh, flowery and descriptive, and and it's not like he's not doing a good job of building a sense of place or a world that's easy to imagine. It's just that it, it's harder to latch on to these things because it feels less vital than the stuff that is happening in Game of Thrones and A Song of Ice and Fire. These are very much side stories about... Um, you know, little adventures that don't really have uh, much of an impact on the world at large. And it sort of feels that way. And it's so for me, it was a little harder to get into it. But um, I'm sure everyone else has uh, opinions. And I'd love to hear anybody else if you want to tweet me or something and let me know what you think about this, uh, this book. Um, But yeah, for me, it just wasn't quite as compelling as the, the main traditional Song of Ice and Fire series. Interesting. Well, we we should head on into the news because we actually do have a lot of interesting things to talk about. And we should start off with the big news of today. Um, Last year, it was announced that Todd Phillips was working on a standalone uh, DC comic book movie based on the Joker and maybe his origin stories. Uh, Now we have learned today that Joaquin Phoenix is in talks to play the title role. HD, what do we know? Yeah, so Joaquin Phoenix is reportedly in negotiations to play the Joker in Todd Phillips' Joker origin movie, or as far as we know, it's an origin movie. Uh, So Variety reports that Phillips met with Phoenix to play the lead character in the untitled origin movie uh, of the Joker. And studio negotiations are not yet underway, but sources say that Phoenix is Philip's top choice for the role and that Phoenix has agreed to take the part. And so this news comes after the rumors that were circulating for a few months that Leonardo DiCaprio was up for the role and that he was the top choice for Warner Brothers. And um, that seemed to fall through, though apparently Todd Phillips did meet several times with um, Leonardo DiCaprio for the role and um, DiCaprio either passed or nothing came of those talks. So this is actually quite an inspired choice because Joaquin Phoenix is an incredibly talented actor who has a huge range uh, of emotion and can really depict that sort of ter- terrifying mania that we associate with the Joker really well. It's just the movie itself, it's a, is a little bit of a strange sort of platform for Joaquin Phoenix uh, because Todd Phillips is mostly known for the Hangover movies and this is a DC Comics movie that is outside of the sort of canon DC extended universe it's under a new banner that's not yet named of sort of DC standalone films that are either sort of one-offs or origin movies like this. Yeah, I think this is exciting. Joaquin Phoenix is, uh, you know, known as an intense actor that throws him in itself into these roles. And I could definitely see him, uh, as the Joker, you know, in a, a Gotham gangster tale. Uh, Ben, do you have any thoughts on this? Yeah, he seems like he's a guy who I immediately think of like a quiet ferocity when I think about Joaquin Phoenix. So the idea of him playing the Joker, I feel like this is going to be different than any other Joker that we've seen. Um, The idea of him playing a young Joker or a Joker origin story is a little weird because he seems a little old for. (laughs) Yeah, he's 43 now, although I did learn that he's. Three years younger than Jared Leto, who's 46, even though Leto looks much younger. Wow, than Phoenix. that is yeah. shocking. I have no <laughs> idea about that. Um, yeah. I, I mean, there, there, there was a uh, 2008 uh, standalone uh, comic, I think, on the Joker by uh, Brian Ezzarello, uh which was great. And if you if you search that comic, like 
what the Joker looks like in that looks almost exactly like Joaquin Phoenix. Um, interesting. Yeah, so. and he's just he's one of those guys that has a really um interesting physicality. Like if you watch him in The Master, he's hunched over and he he just he is such a physical actor. So I, I I'm very fascinated to see if this goes through uh what his version of the Joker is going to look like because I really don't think it's going to be like any of the other iterations we've seen on screen before. Yeah, and we had heard that this is going to be a serious, you know, like almost like it's going for awards kind of movie. Uh the only thing about this project that doesn't sound good to me is Todd Phillips. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Are we all in it's, agreement there? Yeah, yeah. It's interesting because it's being produced by Martin Scorsese, who's known for its association with the mob movie genre. And that's what this movie is reportedly taking its cues from. But then you have Todd Phillips, who's mostly known for the hangover one, two and three, and not distinctly known for his sort of more prestigious projects. If he has any, I'm not really sure. <laughs> Yeah, well, let, let's go from comic books to Apple. Um, Brian so, say, uh, Brian Fuller rather, uh, was going to be the showrunner on the new Amazing Stories TV uh, show, and that is no longer happening. Ben, what happened? Yes, so uh, Brian Fuller, who is the guy who's responsible for shows like Hannibal and Pushing Daisies, has been trying to get an Amazing Stories reboot off the ground for years. Amazing Stories, if you don't know, is a science fiction uh, anthology series that was originally produced by Steven Spielberg back in the 1980s. Um, I had a bunch of awesome, talented people come in in front of the camera, behind the camera. It was like a I guess a precursor to a Black Mirror or something like that. And uh, now Brian Fuller, who had that project up and running at Apple, ended up leaving the project. He, he, according to The Hollywood Reporter, exited the project citing creative differences. And uh, Hollywood Reporter says that he wanted to make a show that was more along the lines of Black Mirror, like something presumably with a little bit of darkness and edginess to it. But Apple wanted something more family friendly. And that does line up with what we know about um, Apple's original uh, television programming um, strategy at this point, which is that they want shows that don't have any nudity or excessive language or violence in them because they want all of these shows to be able to be displayed in Apple stores all around the globe. So it seems like uh, Fuller thought he was going to be able to take these stories a little bit further and Apple ended up sort of yanking on the reins a little bit and then he ended up leaving. So this is actually the third show that he's left um, w- within probably the last year or two. Uh, Star Trek Discovery was another one and Stars's uh, American Gods was one uh, right before that. So right now, Brian Fuller is going to be working on a uh, TV adaptation of Anne Rice's Vampire Chronicles for Paramount TV. And uh, we'll see if he's able to sort of stick around with that one or if he ends up leaving that one for some reason, too. (laughs) It's weird because I don't think Amazing Stories was ever really a dark uh, anthology series. So it's strange that that's like the sticking point. Brian Fuller, uh, for better or for what I mean, and not not for better, but it seems like he's developing sort of a, a reputation of being difficult. Um, at least, you know, judging by these headlines, but, uh, you know, he is a talented showrunner. Uh, are are you guys fans of Brian Fuller? I was a big fan of Pushing Daisies and Hannibal, and I really like his sort of distinct visual style that he brings to all these shows. But yeah, I, at this point he will have, he'll be famous for more for leaving more shows than for actually developing any good ones, which is sad. Pushing Daisies, by the way, is a great series. Everyone should watch it. 
Yeah, I haven't really seen any of his stuff. I know he's uh, much beloved in the TV watching community. Um, but uh, I, I don't know. I, I sort of feel like he's making the right call walking away from these projects. If he's not, if they're not aligning with what he wants to do, I think I'd rather see him move on to something that he's actually passionate about instead of just sort of um, take these lumps and and put out a product that doesn't represent uh, his vision. So, um yeah, I, I agree, Peter. It, it it certainly is not looking good for him, you know, in terms of all these headlines and stuff. But uh, ultimately, hopefully, it'll shake out a little bit for him. What he needs to do is go to Netflix because Netflix allows uh, the showrunners and filmmakers to do whatever they want, from what I understand. <laughs> yeah, there's uh, a joke on South Park uh, the previous season where somebody called in to Netflix's headquarters and they're like, this is Netflix, you're greenlit. <laughs> like, <that was> the, <laughs> they basically just greenlight anything. <laughs> That's funny. Uh, but uh, speaking more about Apple, uh, they have greenlit another TV show coming from the creators of The Big Sick. So tell me about it. Yeah, this one, it's not actually fully greenlit yet, but uh, Kumail Nanjiani and Emily V. Gordon, who are currently Oscar-nominated for writing The Big Sick, uh, have been hired to write on a show called Little America, which is in development at Apple. Um, they are actually going to be working with uh, Lee Eisenberg, who is a longtime writer-producer of The Office, and uh, Alan Yang, who's the co-creator of Netflix's Master of None. And... Um, Little America is based on the true stories that are found in Epic Magazine, and it's all about the immigrant experience in America. Um, they have a brief little breakdown here that I can read for you guys. Uh, it says, everyone here came from somewhere else. Even Native Americans crossed the Bering Strait at some point. This is the basic American idea, an identity open to all, but it can easy it can be easy to forget from inside. And that's when politics can turn ugly, as it has recently with our political narrative becoming a story of blame and fear. Little America is meant to counter that narrative with a fuller portrait of our most recent arrivals. Here we present just a few stories. Um, these stories are a small collective portrait of America's immigrants and thereby a portrait of America itself. So this show is going to uh, tell uh, immigrant stories from the inside out. Um, as we've seen in The Big Sick, uh, Camille Nanjiani and Emily Gordon are especially talented at doing that. And uh, Alan Yang, who is responsible for co-writing most of Master of None's best episodes, um, is also really adept at doing this. Uh, he wrote the season two episode, New York, I Love You, which I don't know if you guys are, are caught up on Master of None, but it's a really, really gorgeous piece of TV that basically pushes pause on the entire narrative of the second season to tell these side stories about random characters in New York City, one of which is an, an immigrant cab driver. So hmm. it's a really great piece of TV that um, that works just as a piece of TV by itself. You don't even have to watch any of Master of None to really understand it or appreciate it. So I would recommend, even if you guys, for some reason out there, if you're listening and have no interest in Master of None whatsoever, seek out this episode just to get a sense of what Alan Yang can do. And that uh, has me pretty excited about um, this project as, as long as Apple ends up picking it up. Uh, yeah, this sounds interesting. I, I, I think, you know, I love uh, these guys and I love, you know, they they are able to ta tackle some stuff with humor and heart. And uh, I think they're the perfect um, people to be tackling a show like this. Uh, although, uh, you know, with Apple, you can't get uh, too, too dark, I hear. 
So, <laughs> yes. Uh, but let's move on to, um, speaking of Too Dark, uh, let's move on to uh, Annihilation, which is coming out soon. Uh, the first screening just happened in L.A. New York, and uh, the first reactions have hit the web. Although I think the reviews, the review embargo is the day before release, which uh, is usually not a good sign. Uh, so, HT, what is what? What are the first reactions to Alex Garland's new movie? So, the first reactions on social media to Alex Garland's follow-up to his directorial debut, Ex Machina, uh, kind of flies in the face of all we've been hearing about Annihilation since now. Um, Paramount has been sort of having an uneasy approach to it, and the review embargo is up until the day before its release, but this movie is getting almost universal critical acclaim. And um, I'm going to throw it over to Ben, actually, because he's one of the uh, people that I cited in this uh, rundown of the so- or early social media reactions. So, Ben, what did you think about Annihilation? Yeah, I don't want to get too much into it because, as you said, the review embargo is uh, is a little bit later on. But I'll read you guys my tweet. And I said, this is the type of sci-fi that we always say that we want to see. It's bold, challenging, singular, visually dazzling. And I would not be the, le- the least bit surprised to see it hailed as a masterpiece. And it might actually be one. So this movie is... Um, it is. It makes complete sense to me after seeing it why Paramount is a little worried about its box office prospects because I don't think this is the kind of movie that's going to do well um, and, and perform well for them financially. But it is a uh, a really staggering piece of work and it's something that um, I, I think anybody who appreciates. Uh, I think challenging is the key word in my <laughs> sort of mini review. There, it is. It is a movie that. Um, that really forces you to to come to grips with what it's trying to do in, in a pretty serious way. Um, the ending is is pretty nuts. It it gets uh, almost impressionistic at certain points, and um, yeah, that's probably all I'm allowed to say yeah. about it at this point. I, I would say we should read some other tweets, but I think you pretty much summed up what everybody is saying on this on this article. Um, yeah, essentially everyone's saying the same. It's a new sci-fi classic. It's brilliant. It's a mind fuck, um, and gorgeous, and just completely challenging and cerebral. So I think that that is the general consensus for Annihilation. So I, I mean, so far critics seem to be loving it. If you if you were going to project an audience score for this movie, Ben, a general oh, audience, the Rotten Tomatoes audience score. What do you think that audience score would be? Um, maybe like a, a around a fifty or something. I don't oh, really wow. know because okay. because oh, no. it's it, it's just a, it's such a slow. It's, it's, it's a very movie, divisive. I think it's just the man. It's hard to it's hard to really get into it, but I think the um, it's a movie that very that takes its time, and I know that audiences are not always. Uh, ready and equipped to handle something like that. So uh, I think really a lot of Paramount's worries about whether or not audiences would would react well to this movie were pretty well founded. Um, and I'm surprised that a major studio is releasing this thing. But uh, but it is really like an artistic success uh, above all else. So we'll see how people end up taking to it. Well, I am now. It mostly more... frustrates me. Oh, sorry. It uh, mostly frustrates me that Paramount stood its ground in defending Darren Aronofsky's, I think, equally divisive mother last year, but is completely waffling when it comes to Annihilation. 
Yeah, it'll be interesting to see. Well, it might the... also be that they're licking their wounds after Mother not doing so well. So <laughs> that's true. Yeah, I'm just glad that they didn't, you know, pull a, a Cloverfield paradox and dump the whole thing to Netflix. I know they did it in a lot of like international territories and stuff, but Paramount, the Paramount Pictures, is actually releasing this in the United States, and people will be able to go see this movie in a theater, and that's that's kind of a big deal. So I mean, I, even if they're not, uh, you know, coming out of the gates. Um, you know, uh, <laughs> guns blazing to defend the movie. I think just the fact that they decided to release it says a lot about uh, about what they care about as a studio right now. Well, I will say this. The marketing for the movie seems to appeal to, you know, people that want to see, like, alien films and stuff. Like, I, I, I think it's... it's um... I don't know. I think it's going to bring people in, but I'm wondering if those, if those people are going to uh, like this film. Uh, but I'm more excited to see this than ever before after reading these reactions. Uh, but we should move on to Venom. The first trailer for Venom hit the web today. The uh, Tom Hardy movie from Sony Pictures, the Spider-Man universe uh, movie with without Spider-Man. Uh, the, the film just ended production recently, I think, right? And uh, they already have a teaser trailer. Uh, and, uh, you know, I'll start this off. This is a bad teaser trailer. This is, like, <laughs> this is, like, really horrible. First of all, you don't see Venom. I, I totally understand why, you know, you wouldn't. The We see some kind of, you know, symbiote thing in a container. I don't know. The, the whole thing just feels very, like, if you told me this was a Netflix original Marvel series, I would have believed you. Like, yeah. it doesn't look uh, big or fantastic. I mean, there is, like, a part where there's, like, these two cars that come crashing in a, a car chase. I don't know. I, Even that looks like a TV-level stunt, though. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, I didn't have much faith about this movie beforehand, but the talent involved in it looks high caliber. And even, like, when they have a shot of Michelle Williams. That's Michelle Williams, right? Yes. Yeah, Michelle Williams uh, kind of having a reaction. It kind of, like... You know, she's so good in, you know, these Academy Award uh, caliber performances. And this, like, I, I instantly am like, oh, this is the Michelle Williams from Oz and Great and Powerful, not from, you know. <laughs> I, mean, like, I always it, forget that she was in that movie. <laughs> so, uh, HT, what, what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, severe disappointment. Just the fact that not only is there no Spider-Man, but there is no Venom in this movie. And um, it doesn't, it didn't excite me. It didn't make me feel like this was a superhero movie at all. And it didn't even feel like a vaguely interesting sort of sci-fi horror movie, which I think is the kind of vibe they're going for. Um, And yeah, I'm just, I don't really have hope in it otherwise, other than hoping that uh, Tom Hardy and the rest of the stars that had cast pull through because I really like the cast like you said but um i'm not really sure about their choices especially tom hardy's choice of accent i'm not really sure what his voice is, what he what voice he's doing <laughs> actually someone pointed out that he's doing terrence howard which <laughs> makes a lot of sense and now i can't watch it any other way so yeah it's i'm very disappointed by this trailer or teaser trailer ben what is your reaction yeah, I mean, I'm not going to be the one who sits here and says that this is a good teaser because it's definitely not. Um, I, I saw somebody else, I forget who it was, on Twitter suggest that they hope that Tom Hardy has a separate voice for when he gets into the Venom suit 
Um, and I really hope that as well, because at this point, Tom Hardy, it just seems like he just does voices. That's like his thing. You know, he, he it's like almost impossible for him to do a straight line reading anymore. I, I wonder if it's some sort of compulsion with him now. But um, yeah, this just looks so bland and generic. And I think Chris mentioned it in his uh, in his write up of the trailer. It's like if this Venom logo did not pop up at the end, I, I don't think anybody would know what the hell this movie even is supposed to be. So, I, yeah, I'm very disappointed. Why has Hollywood lost the art of the teaser trailer? The teaser trailer used to be so good. You know, I'm going to link in the show notes like I did a roundup a, a few years back of like the best teaser trailers of all time. There's something cool you could have done with Venom and teased it and, you know, maybe even associated with Spider-Man in some way. Uh, but this does not get me excited at all. But we should jump to our last story. And that is Dwayne Johnson's Fast and the Furious spinoff has eyed a director. HT, what do we know? So David Leach, who is the director for the upcoming Deadpool 2 and Atomic Blonde, is reportedly in talks to helm the Fast and Furious spinoff starring Dwayne Johnson and Jason Statham. So he has emerged as the frontrunner to steer the still untitled Fast and Furious spinoff, which will center around Johnson's Luke Hobbs, who is the diplomatic security service agent, and Jason Statham's Deckard Shaw, who is the former assassin turned wary fast and furious family member after the events of fate of the furious and um they those two characters really hit it off in fate of the furious and now have a really entertaining bromance going around so this is their um spin-off film apart from the main fast and furious movies and uh david leach is also known for co-directing john wick uh, alongside chad stahelski and he's sort of been rising in the ranks as a um bone crunching pulpy action director yeah he started as a stuntman and was a second unit director i spent some time uh with him on the set of uh wolverine 2 whatever that was called the wolverine um, and he, he, he has an eye for uh, action. Uh, I'm, I'm excited for this. But I know Ben is a bigger fan of the Fast and Furious franchise than uh, both HT and I. So, Ben, what, what are your thoughts on this? I mean, justice for Han, guys. Like, this is, I mean, aside from <laughs> I'm still from angry that, about that. I know, I guess. I guess putting that aside, um, the idea that, that Deckard Shaw is, uh, is just being accepted into this group, um, I think Leech is a really awesome choice for this. I think, uh, as you saw with the long, continuous shot in Atomic Blonde, that stairwell fight sequence he really knows how to frame action well um as you said peter coming from a stunt coordinator background he is the guy who who really has a good sense of geography and he knows how to um how to get across the things that need to come across in really cool compelling action sequences so um for me, this movie, basically all we've seen so far of the relationship between Hobbs and Shaw has been nothing but action sequences. So if they continue that, even as maybe more of like a buddy partner kind of bromance vibe in this spinoff movie, um, I think the action also needs to remain a key part of it. And it seems like they're thinking the same thing. Uh, Chris Morgan wrote this script. He's the guy who's been responsible for almost all of the other Fast and Furious movies so far. So I'm... I hope that maybe this movie is going to address how uh, easily the rest of the gang accepted Shaw into their lives. But um, if not, then maybe in Fast 9, whenever that eventually comes out. But um, 
but yeah, I'm excited. I, I think he's a really good fit for this property. Yeah, and, uh, and just so you know, he did like the Wachowski brothers films. I when I was going to set with him, we had to take this boat to set. He was telling me about, uh, you know, he was Brad Pitt's stunt double on Fight Club. So if you watch Fight Club and you see the part where like Brad Pitt's like, you know, th- throws himself down the stairs near the end, that's actually him. So uh, that ah. guy, that guy is now directing Fast and Furious movie, or might be. <laughs> so, anyways, uh, we have hit the end. We almost did this in under thirty minutes, guys. We're almost getting there. We're we're getting close. <laughs> uh, HT, where can people find more of your work online? You can find me on Twitter at htranbui, and I'm on slashfilm.com. Ben, where can people find more of your work? You can find me writing every day at slashfilm.com. And you can also track me down on Twitter at Ben Pears. This podcast, Slash Film Daily, is published every weekday on iTunes, Google Play, Overcast, all the popular podcast apps. Please go and send your feedback, questions, comments, concerns to peter at slashfilm.com. Leave your name and general geographic location in case we mention that email on the air. Uh, Please rate and review this podcast on iTunes. Spread the word. Tell your friends. And we will see you tomorrow.